My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. Um, on today's episode, I'm going to be taking a look at Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, as well as Searchman Burr's Henri Clouseau's Inferno, which has recently been released on Blu-ray. Um, before I begin, there's a few things I need to discuss. Number one, I'm pleased to see that Filmstruck has arrived in the UK. Um, obviously, this is... I, I've been trying to think of ways I could get this service um, from America and it, it seemed an incredibly convoluted process of changing IP addresses and having a payment system based in America and if you don't know what Filmstruck is it's essentially the Criterion Collection um, online um, but yeah I saw a random tweet and followed the link and yeah I'm pleased to report that it Filmstruck is with us I did subscribe they've got an introductionary uh, one month process and after that it's £6 a month unfortunately I've had to unsubscribe um, because sadly just the app for it yeah it's just not available on many devices i've got apple tv and an amazon fire tv neither of which are new enough to actually support the app so i find that incredibly annoying i never watch films on phones or tablets so on that respect it was quite useless um most of my streaming is going to be done through my playstation 4 so at the moment um i can't really warrant paying six pounds a month for something that i'm not going to watch until this app does come out more i, I don't i'm loath to uh purchase another Amazon Fire TV I, I don't need one um, same with Apple TV really so um, PlayStation 4 will be my last resort I might buy I'm looking to buy a new telly so if I get one on a smart TV I might be able to have it on that or something but yeah it's great that it's here um, when I had a look at it there was about 35 Criterion films a lot of Curzon Home Cinema stuff some nice films on it um, hopefully it takes off and becomes really big and the, the, the content will I'm sure increase uh, month by month I do really feel that there is a um, there is a gap in the market for something like this for sure. Um, when I go on Netflix and Amazon, um, finding sort of like unique sort of older films, you do have to do a little digging. I, I think Netflix is primarily now for the TV series. Um, Amazon Prime has got some great films on it. Some of the Studio Canal stuff that they get on there is great. Films like The Lost City of Z. That's um, now, I noticed that's on streaming now, and I am going to do now. I'm sort of doing more regular shows. I will do a roundup, I think, on each show of stuff which I found on Amazon. Which, because sometimes the I, I don't know about yourselves, but I find the user interface on Amazon really frustrating to kind of find the films. You have to kind of dig quite hard, but there are there are so many decent titles in there. So I will I will uh, do some digging for you and and make some suggestions. But no, overall, really glad that we've got Filmstruck. Um, yeah, once that app gets going, I will happily resubscribe. But if you've got um, Fire TV and that kind of thing, then yeah, d definitely get stuck into it. Um, next up, slightly darker issue actually this. Um, it appears that I managed to pick up a stalker um, between doing this podcast and the Master of Cinema podcast. And said stalker actually reported me to Apple um, for inciting racial hatred. Now, I received um, an email from Apple and they had investigated the episode that they felt that, um, well, that the stalker decided that that was in. And, and they had cleared me of any wrongdoing. They openly said it was a slightly ridiculous um, thing to begin with in the first place. But um, I did notice, and it, it was a, a rather hideous review of the 24 Frames cast that had been posted anonymously on a website. It's now been taken down. So it is all rather weird. Um, I do have an idea of who's doing it, and um, I have reached out to them. 
Um, unfortunately, I, I do think they're suffering from mental health problems. So obviously, it's not—it's no laughing matter anyway. But it's certainly nothing for me to be kind of openly mocking them for. But it just has made me aware that perhaps if things do start cropping up um, online, I, and Christ, I mean, I'm not I'm for, for any stretch of the imagination thinking this is going to be all over Twitter or anything like that. But there were a few tweets that I was tagged in that were quite um, defamatory. Um, there was a Facebook post which was extremely um, uh, unpleasant to have to deal with, um, only because it was focused on my girlfriend. And it's truly frightening, actually, how uh, much kind of personal information people can uh, mine from the internet about you. So if you do read anything or see anything on, on, on Facebook or Twitter that I've been tagged in, and, and it's... I, I'm loath to block this person. I know it's the easiest thing to do, um, but I somehow don't think that's going to solve the problem. I don't really want to antagonise them, but um, we'll we'll see what happens. I'm just putting it out there to be slightly aware of the fact that I'm contrary to what this person might be saying. Um, I, I'm not any of the accusations they have made, which rather interestingly segues into. Um, the reaction that I've seen online to Black Panther now, I had a rather funny email from, from a listener relating to what I was saying in the last episode when I was talking about how the death of film criticism now has become completely based on identity politics. This person forwarded me um, a few reviews that they had been reading and I, I was gobsmacked how, once again, we have a film in which no one seems to be talking about the film and the level of ignorance as to film history and just the sheer willful the ignorance of film history which is being demonstrated by people this is the first black superhero we've ever had no it isn't i distinctly remember watching wedley snipes and blade 20 years ago um which one of the first dvds I ever bought actually but you know did we not have blade did we not have catwoman and these are all films as far as i'm concerned with black lead characters um denzel washington surely was one of the most bankable stars but you know, that doesn't seem to matter. It was just this utter hysteria that has gone around about Black Panther. I, I've not read or really seen any kind of interesting breakdowns of the film itself. It's all about ideology over aesthetics. And it just isn't interesting. Um, I'm reliably informed Black Panther is a really good film. I don't know. I've had a couple of people say they thought it was all right. But a few people say they thought it was quite brilliant. Um, I, I will get round to watching it. But... Again, for, this is really, for me, just such a... For me, this just isn't what I'm interested in when we're talking about films. I, I really... I, 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 want, I want to hear discussions about the camera work, the performances, the nuances of the story. Instead, it's just, well, this is a film about black people featuring black people and it's set in Africa and that's all that matters. Um, it isn't. Um, and we... The, the reaction as well on kind of like um, you know review aggregator sites, especially at Rotten Tomatoes. So someone who gave the film an average review, and it was just the, the the hysteria that was being directed at them. And also, I think we need to kind of bear in mind as well that there is a kind of hysteria going on on the right, especially people. There was that I, I saw the same tweet. There was one woman who tweeted that she wasn't going to go and watch it in its first week to take it, so because she, she didn't want to take away the fun from black people. Again, these kind of that. I mean, that's. The extreme ridiculousness, I mean, but people were kind of going on like this was, you know, a widespread and um, view that was being expressed. And I don't think it was for a second. I think that's just more, I mean, I, I think that is literally Alex Jones territory levels of ridiculousness. So there is a fine line, I, I think, that, we need, that, that, that needs to be drawn. But for the most part, again, I'm just so tired and bored. And I, I do want to go and watch Black Panther. 
But again, I, you know, what if I don't like it? What if it, you know, I think it's profoundly average? What if it doesn't do anything for me? Well, you know, is that just because apparently I'm white and middle class or whatever? Or is it because I legitimately have issues with the film? Um, and that, that's the, the slippery slope we're going to go down. So I think it could become a quite a recurring theme on this podcast. And I, I'm quite interested to kind of reach out to... Um, there's, there's a critic who I, I won't name um, publicly yet, but I, I was thinking of reaching out to them because they're one of the worst offenders of this. And previously they've been someone who I've been really, really interested in their work. So I might try and see if I can get them on the show so we can kind of have a bit of a discussion about this. But that all being said... Um, it's what I've been to the cinema already, which I'm going to be talking uh, about in this episode. Um, I will be doing slightly longer episodes. It just sort of depends what's on and what tickles my fancy, what Blu-rays are coming out and whatnot. I was going to do, I was planning on seeing um, The Shape of Water for this episode and reviewing that as well. But then I sort of really realised that um, I'm not a huge Guano del Toro fan. And um, I... I, I, finding the motivation just because when the film times are on would mean I probably have to hang around in town for a couple of hours and um, I've certainly been quite busy the past couple of weekends so I haven't got around to watching it so I just decided to stick with um, Phantom Thread and Inferno so first up I'll be looking at Paul Thomas Anton's latest You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat when I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. Secrets. Good morning. Will you have dinner with me? Yes. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true. And I have given him what he desires most in return. <laughs> Every piece of me. You're loved by me. Stop playing this game. What game? What precisely is the nature of my game? All your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is a game. This was an ambush. Stop. Are you sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? Stop it! Whatever you do, do it carefully. Now, there was a moment in Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread where Daniel Day-Lewis, playing a character called Reynolds Woodcock, breaks down in front of his sister Cyril, complaining that his muse, and now wife, Alma, has rendered him unable to work, unable to think, and now humiliated that a former client has taken their business to another fashion house. 
Sybil stares impassively back, and we cut to a reverse shot and see Alma stood behind Woodcock as his whining continues. Alma has to go. He can't take it. And then you begin to realise something slightly strange. Alma is actually there, isn't she? But why isn't Sybil looking at her? Why has Alma not reacted in horror at her husband's diatribe? And Phantom Fred is a film made up of such peculiar moments. It veers from the supernatural to the farce, to the heartfelt romance, to black comedy, seemingly all with a heady dose of melodrama thrown in for good measure. Nothing is ever quite what it seems. And crucially, this is a film where you never quite feel utterly comfortable with what you are seeing. It could best be described as the cinematic version of an earache. Now, for anyone who has ever had a particularly bad one, you will find yourself feeling a little off. You feel discombobulated. You find yourself leaning to a particular direction. It's not pleasant, yet nothing quite comes close to the feeling of joy when it's all over. Which is why how I felt when I left Phantom Thread. I was going back into the normal world, a place where things kind of made sense. And no, this is not a criticism, because quite unequivocally, Phantom Thread is a quite brilliant film, and also a thoroughly enjoyable one to boot. Yet Phantom Thread did take the time to warm into, primarily because, because as a film, it was considerably more intelligent than I am. Daniel Day-Lewis obviously plays Woodcock, a pristinely kept couture fashion designer in 1950s London, who along with his sister Civil run the fashion house for the rich and famous. Woodcock is obsessive, breakfast must be eaten in silence, he cannot stand idle chit-chat, he is a raving egomaniac, and above all, he must have a muse of whom he can dispose of when they have served their time. Cyril is the calming influence, ensuring that the fashion house is arranged perfectly to ensure her brother is able to work. Into this comes Alma, Woodcock's latest muse. Seemingly subservient to him, she soon begins to exert a strange force. He actually loves her, even Cyril likes her, but there is something more to her. She exerts a control over Woodcock he cannot grasp, and very soon his work, his health, and his reputation begin to suffer. Paul Thomas Anderson is, for many, the cinephile's director. He makes films that have us nodding in appreciation, recalling moments from our cinematic lives that made us love the medium in the first place. We liken him to other directors such as Altman and Coppola and comfort ourselves that he has been transporting us to 70s America to serve us up periodic cinematic delights that we absolutely must see in 35mm, otherwise we haven't really truly seen them. And yet there's also a whiff of the cult about Paul Thomas Anderson, with a clamouring to call every film he makes a masterpiece. Certainly his previous two films, Inherent Vice and The Master, did absolutely nothing for me. The Master in particular I found to be a particular disappointment. That all being said, I am for the most part a good lover of his work. Yet all that being said, I do for the most part love his work. Magnolia was one of the defining films of my early 20s, and There Will Be Blood is one of the best films ever made. I went into Phantom Thread, therefore, with mixed feelings. I wanted to be blown away, but also conscious of that finding myself actively trying to love a film that I was only so-so about. Now, I'm relieved to say that Phantom Thread is a joy, although it did take me time to fully tune into it. The central issue was, to begin with, Daniel Day-Lewis as Woodcock, 
I mentioned in my Darkest Hour review that there was an oh-so-annoying cliché of the montage showing the frantic preparation of my house staff for the oh-so-picky housemaster. It's such a tedious cliché that during Phantom Fred I sat there wondering just how much better Downton Abbey would have been if Paul Thomas Anderson had directed it. But Phantom Fred did begin with such an opening montage, and part of me recoiled in my seat. The camera moved through the house of Woodcock, its pristinely kept staircases, staff shuffling upstairs in mechanical obedience to their master's routine, and of course breakfast being served with all the pageantry of a royal wedding. And there we had Woodcock. If this is to be Daniel Day-Lewis's last ever performance, then this will be a fitting epitaph to an amazing career, because this character blindsided me. Initially, I could not stand him. There was the weird mummy obsession, the ever so slightly creepy obsession with his muses, and the laser-guided verbal insults. He was a total prick, and yet by the end of the film I completely loved him. Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson know their audience, and they know how to royally fuck with us. When Woodcock falls for Alma, we assume that this will be a love story of burning desires and declarations of soul-ripping love, played out to a crescendo of sweeping orchestral cues. To a degree, this is what we get, yet Alma with whom the film surprises us most. Seemingly willing to take on the role as willing muse, she, she wants a normal relationship with Woodcock, i.e. copley stuff like dinner dates and whatnot, and when she deviates from what is expected of Woodcock, he also is completely broadsided. His muse becomes his nemesis, her annoying insistence on spreading butter loudly or pouring tea while making the maximum amount of noise are subtle acts of defiance and calculated psychological assaults. Woodcock's carefully curated existence is thrown into disarray. Alma treats him like her muse, she loves him and, she w and wants him how she wants. It is here that Phantom Thread became quite a sublime experience. One of my favourite novels of all time is Wuthering Heights, in particular Heathcliff held such an allure. We only know scraps of who he was, enough to give us tantalising glimpses of what he could possibly be. He is foreign and therefore in the realm of the gothic romance, a mystery to which we can insert our own backstory. He is also a, an outsider and an, an instant possible threat. We know nothing about Alma, she's clearly foreign, but Portum Sanderson gives us not a hint of who she is. What she is, is calculating, possibly psychotic even. She poisons Woodcock and exerts a hypnotic control over him. Why can't he simply discard her like the others? Is it the poisoning, or is she some siren in possession of supernatural powers? Or maybe simply she's just extremely dangerous? Phantom Fred feels like it could have been written by one of the Bronte sisters. It feels like a masterpiece of English literature, but instead it borrows from a variety of sources, from films such as The Passionate Friends to Rebecca. Alma feels like the ghost of a bygone era inserted into a piece of modern cinema. So often, a character like Woodcock would be all too consumed with burning love for Alma. And it's the kind of film you'd see Ralph Fiennes in saying something like, I'm dead without you, or some other such trite line. Woodcock realises this woman is literally ruining him in every conceivable way. I went from finding his ritualistic obsessions annoying to thoroughly understanding and relatable. The aforementioned breakdown in front of his sister was one of the film's standout moments. Reduced to near tears in frustration, Woodcock has been dismantled by Alma. We could in the age of Me Too see this as just punishment for his misogynistic behaviour, but this is far more than just pandering to the zeitgeist. Instead, the subtlety of the film's power shifts come full circle. 
Now it is Alma who runs the house. Cyril is no longer the enforcer of Woodcock's whims. She has simply come to like Alma and the house of Woodcock has undergone a systematic shift. Thomas, Paul Thomas Anderson's use of location is inspired too. The house begins to feel eerily like some form of castle with Woodcock being kept prisoner in it. One night Alma insists that the house be emptied, that she will cook for him when he returns from his evening walk. He's made to walk up the stairs to her. The shift in balance, the house's new master, is reinforced. It's very subtle and to a degree slightly obvious, I suppose, but I was becoming conscious aware that a total shift in power dynamics was occurring within the film. I had not particularly liked Woodcock, yet at this moment I began to feel sorry for him and indeed worried how far would she go. There's also another interesting aspect to the film. During the early parts of it, Woodcock mentions to Cyril that he is missing their mother, who we learn has died. He even, we find out, carries a lock of her hair and his coat kept close to her heart, close to his heart, sorry. It is this feeling of sadness that is the, for his mother that is the prompt for him to go to the country where he meets Alma and quickly makes her his new muse. And now I may be reading way too much in the film, but part of me wonder if Alma was some kind of metaphorical reincarnation of his mother. His obsession with Alma defines logic and reasons towards Yin, yet he allows her to mother him like a child and seemingly is unable to reject her himself. His life's work is creating garments that would please his mother. We learn that as a child he designed her wedding dress for her second husband and the various superstitions surrounding wedding dresses may or may not be the reason why Cyril is actually single. Through a hallucination his mother appears in his room whereupon Alma obviously oblivious to the apparition, nurses him back to health, walking past the mother, completely ignoring her. Again, the film is playing in so many realms, one can only wonder and interpret to its heart's content. Credit must go to Leslie Manville as Cyril. It is easy in a film with Daniel Day-Lewis and the excellent Leslie Cripes playing Alma, giving both such commanding formances that, Man that Cyril could have somehow kind of faded into the background, but Manville elevates the character from serial scowler and house enforcer to a far more compelling and rewarding creation in her own right. Now it does seem in all this as well just easy is how to forget how good a director Anderson is. This film has no credited DOP with Anderson working with his team from his previous films set mostly in interiors. The film never becomes visually boring. The use of high and low angles made for very conscious spaces from inside the house Huge imposing doors and winding staircases cling perfectly with tiled floors. Particularly interesting too were the scenes showing all these wonderful creations of Woodcock being made. I'd never really thought about how clothes were made before and certainly this film made me did. And over the f course of the film's running time I was reminded of the works of people like David Lean, Alfred Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick all reimagined through Paul Thomas Anderson's own unique filter and despite my initial recreations this film was born to be seen in the cinema on the biggest canvas imaginable. Now I do have one minor gripe with the film and that has to do with Johnny Greenwood's score. It must be a Radiohead thing or something I'm just not hearing because I have never particularly been fond of his film work. There Will Be Blood had its moments but for the most part I don't really enjoy his music. But overall Phantom Thread was a class affair for me odd would be my word for it. It veers out with various influences yet feels totally unique and original. It surprised me, I laughed a lot and I marvelled at its sheer cinematic joy and if this is to be Daniel Day-Lewis's film then it's a good way to bail out. Cinema will miss him for sure and it was a better place for having him in it.
jour, le cinéma de l'époque, c'était un grand, un des très grands du cinéma, un des metteurs en scène français qui pouvait euh, drainer des, des acteurs et aussi les capitaux qu'il voulait pour faire ce qu'il voulait. L'enfer pour Clouseau, c'était la volonté de faire un autre type de cinéma. Le film raconte l'histoire d'un homme qui est, qui est hyper jaloux et il pense que sa femme le trompe, aussi bien avec des hommes qu'avec des femmes. Et donc à chaque fois qu'il pense que sa femme le trompe, l'univers extérieur se déforme. Now, I love documentaries about films. They often make me want to re-watch films I've seen many times before and go out and watch ones I've never heard of. In the age of DVD, the making ofs went from a pleasant novelty to mainly studio-sponsored propaganda pieces with talking heads of people banging on about how pleased they were to work with such and such. Yet there were films about the making of films that were legitimately great films in their own right. The Heart of Darkness, for example, or My Best Fiend and Dangerous Days, the making of Blade Runner. And there is kind of a sub-genre to these making of documentary films. And that's the making of a film that was never made documentary film. Jodorowsky's Dune is a very notable example. A fascinating look at what, quite rightly, should have never been made. And yes, I stand by that. No amount of Pink Floyd soundtracks and Geiger designs would have stopped Jodorowsky's vision from being just an utter mess of epic proportions. But bar none, my favourite of all these is Serge Brimbert's Henri Clouseau's Inferno, which has recently been given a Blu-ray release by Arrow Films. Now, Clouseau has often been described as the French Hitchcock. It's a mildly disrespectful title, in my opinion. He is, in his own right, a quite brilliant filmmaker who should simply be celebrated for being who he was, not who he is apparently like. In fact, I've actually heard that Hitchcock was directly influenced by him, so it does seem a rather stupid title anyway. But it was his 1953 film, Wages of Fear, that for me will always be his crowning achievement. As pure cinema as can be, it never fails to amaze me and surprise me. A frankly trying experience that is the textbook example of how to extract every last piece of tension from an audience member. It was no surprise that one of, one of Christopher Nolan's go-to films, preparing for Dunkirk, and has recently been given a fantastic, I would say definitive, uh, released by the British Film Institute and Blu-ray. In 1964, however, Clouseau began working on a screenplay he had written called Inferno. Columbia Preachers granted him an unlimited budget to make a story of a hotelier jealous of the tension his young wife was receiving from local men and her close friend. After three weeks, the production had ceased. Why and how is documented in Broomberg's excellent film that features reenactments of missing scenes from the films interviews with those present and tantalising glimpses of test footage and sound effects that survive from the troubled shoot. Now the film works on two levels. Firstly, it's an exploration of a director's creative protest, and secondly, it's a fascinating piece of film history. In the first instance, we get to look at the inside of Clouseau's working. Now the, French, the filmmakers of the French New Wave sniffed at his methodical planning and preparations because of his lack of improvisation. Yet all filmmakers are different, and let's be honest, there is, not, there is more than a whiff of pretentiousness about some of the French New Wave, although of course that's why we love it. And Clouseau did quit back at them with, I improvise on paper, which really you have to say is completely fair enough. 
But here we see a director plotting how he can translate his ideas from script to screen in the most fascinating ways imaginable, from storing, boarding with the exact lengths, focal lengths drawn into the image, to better aid his matching shots when on location, to undertaking a variety of experiments using actual characters to demonstrate the temporal disturbance of the character's mind and show that on screen. Much of the test footage was found. Some of the footage we see has tests with stand-ins, and those alone make for genuinely impressive moments of visual trickery, and a large amount of lead actress Romney Schneider having light projected onto her with a series of revolving effects to project different emotions onto her face. Even without the film as a whole, and the context of seeing these moments fully realised, you cannot help be drawn into the mindset of Clouseau and what he was attempting. The sheer inventiveness of what we see is mind-boggling, and even on a reasonably large television there are a couple of moments that actually generally make me feel quite queasy. With an unlimited budget, him and his crew were free to try anything. And there's a real sense, and indeed some of the testament of the people who were involved, that this was a creative process that was extremely good fun to be taking part in. Some things worked, some things did not. But they were being made in the spirit of creative endeavour. Now the film was to be shot in black and white with colour sequences to demonstrate the psychological breakdown of Marcia, the hotelier played by Serge Reggiani. And these breakdowns were to be initiated by the sound of a nearby train crossing a bridge. There was one issue, however. Clouseau had a reputation for being something of a tyrant. He once drugged a Bridget Bardot, forcing out her stomach pumps and slapped someone else who was generally considered a bit of a nightmare. Reggiani was forced to convey his growing madness by running behind a car. This would often happen for up to 10 miles a day, which soon began to take its toll. Now, Clouseau did not have a particularly good relationship with his leads, and his career perhaps... Now, Clouseau clearly did not have a particularly good relationship with his leads, and this perhaps was one film too far. Reggiani would end up walking off the project after 10 days, and Clouseau undeterred recast and carried on shooting, often working through the night and filming through the day. As a piece of film history, this is fascinating stuff. Why do films fail? Well, in this case, it may have been many factors conspiring against it. The lake they were filming on was due to be drained, and possibly the pressure of having to rewrite the film began to mount. One day, Clouseau was filming a scene with Schneider and Danny Carl having a lesbian fling on a boat, and Clouseau collapsed from a heart attack, and the film was shelved. Now, Broadbright's approach does not overpay the what-ifs of Inferno. Who is to know how the final film would have finished? From what we see, it's intriguing for sure. The film does look incredible. Could it have worked? Well, who knows? We will never know. And Brumbo does not postulate either, because he doesn't overly romanticise what Inferno could be by creating a compelling narrative of what went wrong with the film. The use of reenactments, interviews and footage shot all combine to create a balanced overview of the experience of the film. There are parallels to be drawn, perhaps, between Clouseau and the lead character. Both are obsessive, both are driven mad by their muses. I don't know if that's something Brumberg is trying to attempt with the film, but certainly it was an impression I got. Yes, the test footage does look amazing, but why was Clouseau so obsessed with it, especially when he was well aware that the lake he was filming on was going to be drained and time was running out? Was it simply a case of a director having too much control over a project? I was, and I won't rely... I, I won't like reminded of the brilliant making of film about the Star Wars The Phantom Menace when it is blatantly apparent that no one is standing up to George Lucas and asking impertinent questions. They are simply there doing his bidding and I don't think that is good for a creative process. There's also a sense I suppose that we see Clouseau trying to reinvent himself in an age where the likes of Godot and co 
Godanko were becoming the poster boys of French cinema. Was this simply a film too far by a then ageing director in a changing world? The film is sympathetic and objective. In its own right, it's a legitimately brilliant documentary that brings otherwise a lost film to light. And although we're yet to give, see Inferno, what we have here is perhaps the next best thing. Now, like I said, there is a new version by Arrow out on Blu-ray that comes with a load of interviews and some special features and whatnot. And it's a really great package. And it has been released in both America and um, in the UK. And I've decided that what I'm going to do on these shows now is do a giveaway. And I am going to give away a copy of Henri Clouseau's Inferno on this new Arrow edition on Blu-ray. And what I'm going to do is obviously you'll have to give me, tell me where you want it sent to. If you want it sent from America, that's fine. I can have it posted from Amazon.com. If you want it, for, if you're based in Europe, I'll, I'll buy it here and I'll send it to you wherever you are in the world. It will obviously just have to um, get in contact with me when I when I set the question and then we'll work it out from there what, what copy you want. But what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to set, rather than doing a question, which I think is something people can probably way easily find out online, I'm going to set a film for you to watch and the first person that sends me a picture of the film on their television screen or their computer watching it and there is a slight caveat to this as well because I want at least a 200 word critique of that film that I will post on the blog and the first person to send me a picture of their television with the film on and that 200 word critique and the reason why I want the picture is I, 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 I want to see some evidence at least that you have genuinely watched the film I will send you a copy of Inferno I'm going to do this on every episode now I will give away a film along these conditions so now the film I'm going to pick for you to watch and critique is Joseph von Sternberg's 1930 film Morocco. It stars Milena Dietrich and Gary Cooper. Um, it's a film which I, I went back to. Uh, it, it was the very first film that I ever watched at my university course. And I remember just almost falling asleep during it. And I've gone back and watched it since. And I, I was ridiculously impressed by it. So these are the rules. 200 words plus a picture sent to me of the screen that you're watching on with the film playing, I will post your critique of it on the blog, and the first person that sends that back to me will receive a Blu-ray copy of Henri Clouseau's Inferno. So get going. Um, you can send your entries to me via my email address, 24framescast at gmail.com, or you can tweet it to me or whatever. Um, well, certainly, I think if we're going 200 words, you're going to probably have to email it to me. So, yes, we'll do it by email. So that's 24framescast at gmail.com. That will be it for this episode. I will be back in contact soon. If you want to know anything else about the competition, then just, just let me know. So you can find me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can find me on Facebook on the Tom Jennings who stood over Giants Causeway. Always let me know when you send a friend's request who you are. Like, well, just let me know that you've found out through the podcast and I will add you to my friends list. Um, you can also find me on Master of Cinema Cast. That's masterofcinema.blogspot.com. Um, and you can find my blog, obviously, at 24framescast.blogspot.com also. That's going to be it for this episode. Many thanks for listening, and I'll be in contact very soon.